Hey everyone, welcome back to the Human Apologetics. So glad you joined us today. Today I'm joined by Dr. Leighton Flowers. We're going to be talking about Roman nine, Romans 9 and does it support Reformed theology. So Leighton, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm doing great, Zach. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Where we're just kind of kind of like do an overview of Romans 9 and look at it from Leighton's perspective and see what's going on here. Um, it's a common text that's used to support Reformed theology. Um, so to start off, Leighton, could you talk just a little bit about like who you are and what you do and what got you interested in like things like this in case people don't know who you are? Yeah, sure. A lot of people know me online because of Sociology 101. It's kind of become popular because it is a controversial issue and oftentimes controversial issues uh, become viral, so to speak. And, <laughs> uh, and so a lot of people know me online because of my Sociology 101 podcast. But long before I started the podcast, I actually had a life in ministry that did many other things. Uh, I'm the director of evangelism and apologetics for Texas Baptists, and I've, I've worked uh, for the Texas Baptist Convention for about 16, 17 years now. And um, and so you could go to uh, the evangelism page there at texasbaptist.org, and you could see a lot of my uh, ministries that are above and beyond and beside that, which you'll find on the Sociology 101 website. Um, but uh, I love what I do. Um, I, I love to be able to share Christ and show love. It's part of our theme of Texas Baptist and what we call the, the GC2, which is the, the Great Commission, the Great Commandment. And that's really our focus there is we're helping churches to be better at, at reaching people for, their, for, uh, for the sake of the gospel uh, and for helping people to, to grow in their uh, local communities. Um, and, and I love working for Texas Baptist. It's a great place to work, great people that I work with. And, uh, and an honor to serve Texas Baptist in that way. Texas Baptist is a, is a state convention, but it's a part of the larger uh, national convention with North American Mission Board, NAM, as well as the Southern Baptist Convention of Texas that many people will be aware of. And so I am a Southern Baptist, but at the same time, I, I recognize there are others that are not a part of the Southern Baptist stream of, of Christianity, and I consider them brothers as well. And, uh, and we get along real well on our, on our podcast and other places and uh, conversing about different theological beliefs and doctrines. Mm, that's great. Um, so today we're going to be talking about Romans 9 and like what the text is all about. Um, so before we get into like the specifics of the text, could you talk a little bit about like the context surrounding um, Romans chapter 9? Yeah, sure. Um, I, for those that don't, aren't aware, I have written a book called The Potter's Promise that, that gets into more detail about my particular journey into Calvinism and back out of Calvinism, why I was a Calvinist, why I'm not anymore. And it really, the bulk of the, the, the book goes through verse by verse through Romans chapter, uh, really starting back in chapter 8 into 9, 10, and 11, because it's really a grouping that can't be separated uh, I mean, contextually, you've got to understand the historical context of what's happening, what Paul's addressing. And in the previous eight chapters, um, Paul made you know man's need and God's gracious provision through Christ abundantly clear. Uh, Paul ends chapter eight on really a high note in reflection of the endless, inseparable love that God has for those in an abiding, loving relationship that you can't be separated from the love of Christ that is, that is in Jesus our Lord. Uh, the tone shifts really in chapter 9 dramatically to the topic of Paul's great sorrow, uh, his continual grief for, for Israel, who has now been cut off in their unbelief and their rebellion. And so he's, he's testifying about the condition of Israel, which is, and the seriousness of that condition as ones who've been cut off uh, in their unbelief and in their rebellion and his heartache for them. And so that's kind of the shift that takes place in Paul's argument. And he's going on to argue ultimately that God's promise to Israel and what he's promised to bring about through Israel has not failed. Because if you remember the original promise in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he said to Abraham, uh, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
And so the promise uh, to Abraham was not, I'm going to choose you to the neglect of all other people, or I'm going to choose you and your descendants to the neglect of all other people, as if I'm choosing you for salvation and nobody else gets salvation. It's not what the doctrine of election is about at all. It is about God choosing the nation of Israel, the seed of Abraham, to be a blessing to all the other nations of the world. So it's through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So a biblical view of election is always about God's choice of nations and individuals from that nation to be a blessing to all the other peoples of the earth. I I use this analogy quite regularly. If I have um, a plate of cookies that I want to bless my children, my four children with, and I pick the oldest child, Colson, and I say, Colson, go take this plate of cookies to your siblings. Then I am not choosing my son and showing him undue favoritism by saying, I'm only going to give you the blessings and nobody else. You're getting the cookies and nobody else. No, I'm choosing him to be the one who delivers the blessing to all the siblings. Now, if he's disobedient and he goes the other direction and tries to head to his bedroom to hog the cookies for himself, I have at my disposal, as his father, uh, ways to convince him to go where I want him to go, much like Jonah was called to Nineveh to to take the, the blessings to Nineveh, and he didn't want to go. And God has at his disposal things like a blinding light or a big fish or a storm to convince his messengers to take the message where he wants it to go. And that's what we see, I think, reflected out through the book of of Romans uh, chapters 9 and following is Israel's unfaithfulness. They're heading the wrong direction. Their their unwillingness to do what God has promised they will do to bless the nations of the world isn't actually a failure on God's promise. It's actually a part of God's plan and purpose in, in grafting in the nations of the world. And so when we understand that election is not about God's choice of nations or individuals to the neglect of other nations or individuals, but to be a blessing to all peoples, then I think we have a biblical understanding of the doctrine of election coming into the chapter. Uh, And we won't misinterpret Paul to mean that God has only selected a pre-select few and that he's going to irresistibly cause them to believe through some effectual grace um, and these kinds of things that I think are imported into the text. Uh, by by later developments that aren't really original to Paul's intention. Mm. So what we're going to be doing here is going like kind of like just verse by verse through this. Um, but to start off, could you just kind of give like a brief overview if you're going to describe it in like 60 or 120 seconds or something like that? Like what is Romans 9 all about? Well, Romans 9 is about answering the question. Um, if, if the nation of Israel is not faithful and they're not doing what it seems that they should be doing if they're the chosen people, which is to believe their Messiah and spread the good news of salvation to all people. If they're not doing it, and God is the one who's chosen this this people to be the mouthpiece, to be the messengers of good news, then has God's promise failed? And Paul is walking through history to, to demonstrate how God has always accomplished his purpose through a remnant, a small group of ragtag believers, no names. Um, the the 7,000 that have refused to bow a knee to Baal. God chooses those faithful remnant um, to to bring about his promise through them. Nobody may know them or see them because they're not the leaders. They're not the ones that everybody's looking to, like the Pharisees of Paul's day. It's the ragtag group of no-names, the fishermen, uh, that God is using to bring about his promise through this ragtag group of people. And it's through the hardening of Israel. It's through their rebellion that God's actually accomplishing his purpose of redemption and the ingrafting of the nations of the world, the Gentile peoples. And so it might might look from our vantage point like God's promise to Israel has failed. But the fact is, God's promise hasn't failed. God is actually accomplishing his purpose through the, the hardening of Israel and 
the, the use of this ragtag group of believing ones, uh, the, the apostles in specific, and, and a larger group of the disciples themselves, that nobody has ever heard of or know about because they're, they're no names, uh, but that God's accomplishing his purpose through them. And God is sovereign. He has the ability to bring about his purpose and his plan uh, however he wants to. He can, he, can, he can accomplish his plan even when it seems like, uh, from our vantage point, he's failing. Um, that, that God can, can establish his covenant with whomever he wants to. He can establish it even with uh, prostitutes and um, pagans from these Gentile barbarian nations through faith. If that's who he wants to establish his covenant with, he can do that. And who are you to question God if he establishes and shows mercy and, sh- and establishes his covenant even with the Gentile barbarians? And he walks through that in, in chapter uh, 9, 10, and all the way into 11. You can't, you can't divorce chapters 10 and, 11, 10 and 11 from chapter 9. They, they all flow together. And, and unfortunately, it seems to me that the, the more Calvinistic reading of Romans chapter 9 seems to try to divorce the flow into chapters 10 and 11 because the same ones who are hardened and cut off in chapter 9 are the same ones he says have not stumbled beyond recovery and could be grafted back in if they leave their unbelief in chapter 11. And so I think we have to have that flow that is consistent in our interpretive method if we're going to understand what Paul's meaning is in chapter 9. Mm, that's really helpful. Um, so now that we, that we frame the context and kind of get like a brief overview, I think it'd be good to kind of get into this. Um, I know you have an outline that I believe is on your website where you kind of go line through line, line by line through Romans um, chapter nine here. So I'll turn it to you and we'll kind of go through this together and we'll talk about like just like different Calvinistic um, kind of like arguments along the way. And yeah, if that sure. works for you, let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it starts off with the condition of Israel there in verses one through three that Paul tells, testifies to the seriousness and the, the sincerity of his inspired words. Uh, in other words, he's trying to emphasize the fact that he is not exaggerating here, that he's writing under inspiration, and, in, and, and he's, he's holding up his words. Uh, he said, God is my witness, in a, in a sense. And he says, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. And so this is not merely an emotional appeal from the heart of a Jew who desires to see more Jews saved. Um, instead, it is a witness of the Spirit himself inspiring the apostles' deep conviction and desire for all lost souls. And I don't believe that Paul is more merciful and more self-sacrificially loving than the God who's inspiring him. In other words, the, the type of love that Paul is expressing under inspiration is an expression of the divine love. It's not a, it's, it's an, 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 the Calvinistic reading you, you would have to conclude that Paul is more willing to give up his own life for the sake of these hardened Jews who the Calvinist typically ultimately says are reprobates. They're, they're cut off before they're ever born in, in a, 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 the doctrine of reprobation, that they're predestined and chosen for reprobation, for hell, and that Jesus really didn't come to die for them. Paul's willing to give up his own salvation, his life for them, but Jesus apparently wasn't. And I don't think that's a tenable way of understanding uh, Paul. I think what Paul is expressing is a divine love. Paul is expressing his own self-sacrificial desire and love for these hardened unbelievers because God has a desire for these hardened unbelievers, which Paul himself expresses in chapter 10. That's why you can't divorce the two. In chapter 10, verse 1, he prays for these same people, these, these hardened Israelites. And in chapter 10, verse 21, the very last verse, he says God holds out his hands to them all day long. 
And that imagery is like a father holding out his hands to a, a wayward toddler saying, come to me. And so this is the expression of God, what we see in Matthew 23, 37, that, that, that uh, I would gather your children under my wings, but you're not willing. Um, that the, the, the expression of Jesus, even in, in Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 41 and 42, where he weeps over Israel because of their unbelief. The, these are genuine, I think, expressions of God's desire and longing for the salvation of every man, woman, boy, and girl, and especially his chosen people. Um, it, just like with the analogy I was saying with my child, uh, Colson, when I give him the plate of cookies, I want him to experience the blessings too. But if he's rebellious and he's going the opposite direction, I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to be in pain, genuine pain, and desiring for him to do what's right and to experience mm. the blessings of, of what I want all of my children to experience. And so there's, there's a desire, I think, on, on God's part, being expressed through the apostle, that he wants the salvation of these hardened, uh, these hardened Jews who are being cut off because of their rebellion. And so Paul demonstrates a Christ-like self-sacrificial plea for hardened Israel. And there in the blue letters, that's, that's the letters of the scripture there for those that are following along. So it's just kind of walking through the text uh, verse by verse. And so he says, I, I have great sorrow and a continual grief in my heart. So Paul shifts from celebrating the relationship of the believer, those grafted in by faith, to reflecting on the overwhelming number of those cut off for their unbelief. So notice they're not cut off arbitrarily. They're not cut off for no apparent reason before they did anything good or bad, which is the way Calvinists will go on to read and to apply the concept of Esau being hated before he did anything good or bad, that they will ultimately conclude that therefore those who are hardened or reprobate are ultimately cut off before they did anything bad. And unbelief is bad. So they're not cut off for no apparent reason, according to the text. They are cut off because of their unbelief. If you read chapter 11, verse 20, that's exactly what it says. They're not cut off for no apparent reason. They're cut off because they have refused to believe the truth. And so he's, he's holding out hope for them. He's, he's grieving for them. And that, that's a topic that continues into the next two chapters, as we've already mentioned. And so point two I would mention mm-hmm. here, the apostle deals with his feelings about the current condition of Israel, who has rejected their own Messiah. How does that reflect on God's promise made to Israel in Genesis 12, 3 that we mentioned? Has God failed to keep that promise? In other words, if he says, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you, Abraham, and through your seed, and it looks like your seed is rebelling and going the opposite direction, then has God's promise failed? And what Paul is coming along saying is, no, that's, it's not, and no, it may seem like to you because all the Pharisees and the leaders are rebelling. It may look like God's promises failed through the nation of Israel, but that's not the case. And then he's going on to explain why it's not the case. So if, if God will not keep his promise to Israel, then how can we know he will keep his promise to us? which is really the underlying uh, objection here. It's, it's kind of like, okay, if, if God doesn't even keep his promises to his own chosen people, uh, the Israelites, then how can I know, as a Gentile even, that he'll mm. keep his promise to me? How, how do I know he's faithful to keep his promises? And so he goes on to write, for I wish, I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Now, as I've already mentioned, this is the self-sacrificial Christ-like love for those who have become his enemies. Paul again expresses this desire for unbelieving Israel in, uh, in 10.1 and in 10.21, as I already mentioned. This likewise reflects the same heart of Moses referenced by the apostles in 9.15. Uh, then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people, I've, they've committed a great sin and have made themselves a god of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book 
which you have written. In other words, what we see from Moses in Exodus 32 is very much a reflection of the same kind of spirit and heart of, of a Christ-like attitude of take me with, you know, take me instead, Lord. Um, you know, if, if, if your justice demands a payment, I will make that payment. And that's Moses' plea. That's Paul's plea. That's the plea of Christ. And so these are Christ-like figures. They're acting like their Savior by saying, take me instead, um, which is a self-sacrificial love for them all, even despite their rebellion, not passing them by before they're ever born for no apparent reason, which is what the Calvinistic system would ultimately have to entail. Um, and so point three, I would say most importantly, Paul reflects the very desire of Jesus who willingly is willingly to willing to accurse himself for his enemies, uh, if they might so as the so that they might be saved, as we see Galatians uh, three thirteen as well. So this is where it gets into the heart of it in verses four and five. Yeah. So um, just just very briefly before, yeah, so you so, think like ahead. a big part. I just wanted to like summarize here because um, you're doing most of the talking, so I want to make sure you get a little bit of a break here. Um, but like, would you say that like one of the like the major themes in this, in like the first section here is Paul like desiring that like um, all the Jews would be saved? Is that kind of a big theme you see here? Absolutely, which which is a reflection of his desire for the world to be blessed, because that goes back to the original promise that I've chosen you, the nation of Israel, to be the mouthpiece and the blessing to the to the, all the families of the earth. So he obviously wants them to be blessed as well, but he also wants them to be the blessing, and 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 it looks like that's that whole that whole plan has just failed because from the, the Jews' perspective, they're looking around and they're going, oh, look at all the Pharisees. Everybody's rejecting this Jesus. Uh, uh, that, that's just a cult. These, these Christians, this is just a cult. This is not, this is not of God. And, and Paul's stepping in and going, no, this is of God. This is the way God promised to fulfill his plan, even through the hardening of these uh, rebellious Jews. This is a part of God's plan of redemption. Mm. So if we continue on into verse four and five, so given that any nationality may be saved through faith and many from Israel do not believe, then the question is, what is the benefit of being a Jew? And that, that's exactly the same question that we've heard before in, in Romans chapter three, by the way. And so here's what he writes. He says, who are the Israelites to whom pertains the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came who is overall the eternally blessed God amen in other yeah. words this is what sets Israel apart in other words when you ask the question what what benefit is there to being a Jew here it is the the, the Jews have been given all of these blessings they have been the, the covenants have been made with them and the giving of the law the service of God all these promises have been given to them. They are the mouthpiece, the oracles, as as chapter three says, have been given to these people. So it, they are a blessed people, but mm. they're not blessed to the neglect of every other people. They are blessed so as to be a blessing to every other people. Just like the apostles aren't chosen to the neglect of all the other people, they're chosen to be a messenger to all the other people so that all may be blessed through their message. That's, that's the point that he's getting at. So I would first mention um, as, as seen in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the apostle here reminds the reader the benefit or blessing of being a natural descendant of Israel. In other words, being a Jew has a benefit. The very word of God was entrusted to the Jews, as seen in Romans 3, 2, which, were included, which included the Messiah, was obviously Christ was a Jew, and his redemptive message came through the Jewish people. The apostles were chosen Jewish people, so that the message comes through this nation. The special revelation of God, which 
all served to testify and prepare the way for the Messiah and his gospel came by way of this elect nation. That is a special calling. That is an honorable use. In other words, there, there's some vessels for honor and some for dishonor. Well, this is an honorable thing to be chosen for. If you're chosen to be an, a prophet, apostle, to be a messenger of God, like Jonah was chosen, he was chosen for an honorable purpose. Uh, mm. and, and so the, the nation, generally speaking, the nation of Israel was chosen for this honorable purpose. So Israel's unfaithfulness and their being cut off for unbelief does not negate this blessing or the promise that first brought that blessing to this elect nation of God, as seen in Genesis 12, 3 and Romans 3, 3 through 4. Now, if we had more time, I could go to these these texts and we can walk through them too, but I'd encourage you to do your own study on, on these, mm. these uh, cross-references. So why has the word of God not failed? Okay, Since the very people entrusted to bring the word are standing in opposition to it, then has his word failed? Because it seems like I mean, that's what it would seem like, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it seemed like it's failed. If most of Israel is rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and God promised this people to be the blessing through which the Messiah would come and bless all the nations of the world, it seems like, well, that didn't work. You know, plan B, you know, what, what can we do now? Mm-hmm. But this is what Paul's saying. No, no, that's not, that's not true. God's plan is still fully um, in God's sovereign. He's bringing about his purpose and his plan, even despite the unbelief of Israel. So, it's, it's not as though the word of God has taken no effect. In other words, God's word has not failed. The ones entrusted with the word are opposing the word. So then has the word failed? That, that's, the, that's the big question. Those entrusted with the word are opposing the word. So then it looks like the word's failed. And Paul's going, nope, this is a part of God's plan. God's word has not failed despite how things may appear from our limited human perspective. The fulfillment of God's word as promised to Abraham is not dependent upon the faithfulness of Israel. Okay, This is why I think the reference back to the interlocutor, interlocutor is the, the anticipated objector, uh, objector in the mind of Paul. So Paul's anticipating what his reader is going to object to. And this same interlocutor, the same objector, is introduced in Romans chapter 3. And he's reintroduced back here, and again, most commentators acknowledge this. In fact, even some Reformed commentators have acknowledged that chapter 3 is is the same interlocutor as what we have in chapter 9. And this is the hardened Jew who's ultimately saying, has God's promise failed? Uh, is, is What about the unfaithfulness of, of Israel? And you can even go over there and you can look at it. Um, if you see this in, in chapter 3, um, and, and it even says, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust and inflicts his wrath? In other words, if, if our unrighteousness as Jews actually makes known the righteousness of God, then isn't God unjust to have wrath mm-hmm. on us? In other words, if, if I as a Jew crying out, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus, if that was actually a part of the plan of God for redemption, mm-hmm. then why are you to blame me? I'm just doing what you planned, God. That's, that is the interlocutor. That is the objector in the mind of Paul. It's the Jew who is hardened in his unbelief, cut off in his unbelief, and now being used by God in his hardened rebellion to bring about a redemptive good through him. And mm. and that is the objector in the mind of Paul. And that's the objection he's answering. And when you understand that, then you understand the flow of the text from this point forward. If, if you bring in to the text the presumptions of the Calvinistic system of total inability and irresistible grace 
and unconditional election and all the, the tulip kind of construct, and you bring in those presuppositions to the text, it does sound like it's supporting a Calvinistic reading because instead of understanding it's the interlocutor of the hardened Jew being cut off in his unbelief for a, a redemptive good, you instead read individual election to salvation and certain people being chosen for salvation, certain people being chosen for damnation, and you read that into, eisegetically read into the text would be my mm -hmm. charge. And so that's why we, we highlight these these issues. And so the fulfillment of, of, of God's word as promised to Abraham is not dependent upon the faithfulness of the Israelites. And so the many descendants of Israel who are seeing, seeing stand in opposition to the word were not chosen by God to carry the word. Thus, it cannot be concluded that God's word has failed. And so in other words, just, just because you're an Israelite doesn't necessarily mean you've been chosen to be one of the apostles. Just because mm. you, you have a, the bloodline of Abraham in you doesn't mean God has chosen you to be one of the people who are writing the scriptures or doing the honorable, um, selected for the honorable purpose of being one of the apostles, the prophets. Uh, and so you can't assume that just because you're a descendant of Abraham that you've been chosen to be one of the people that is going to bring about God's purpose and mm. his plan uh, in, in and through you. So um, then he goes on in the, in the scriptures there. And feel free, uh, Zach, at any time to, to cut me off. I know I can yeah. be very <laughs> long-winded and just keep talking forever because that's just, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I'm a preacher at heart, and so that's what I do. But feel yeah, free no, to ask I'm tracking with you. Back. And I think as we progress more, um, we'll probably have more kind of like objections or things that I kind of throw at you. Um, but for the moment, I think we're at a really good pace. Um, so, yeah. It's, mm -hmm. Perfect. Okay, so for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Okay, so what does that mean? Not every descendant of Israel is chosen to carry out the purpose for which God elected Israel. Other words, in other words, not every Israelite is chosen to be like, uh, Paul, an apostle mm. like Paul was. Okay, um, so just because you're a descendant of Israel doesn't mean you were chosen individually for service for a special honorable use. You you might be one of the Jews who actually rebels, becomes an unbeliever is cut off in your unbelief, and you might fulfill God's plan by crying out, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus, a dishonorable use. But that's your own fault. In other words, you didn't have to become an unbeliever and reject the, the Messiah. You chose to do that. And God can use you in your rebellion to bring about his purpose even through that rebellious act that you did because God's sovereign. He knows your heart. He knows your, your circumstances and situation, and he can use you to bring about his purpose even through your sinful actions. He doesn't have to cause you to do that. He doesn't have to determine your pride, your lust, and your, your sinful thoughts. And He doesn't even tempt men to do evil. But he can know it, and because he knows our hearts, because he knows the hearts of Judas and Pilate and the other sinful men, the other uh, rebellious people in the narrative of Christ's death and crucifixion, because he knows them and knows their hearts, he can use them in their rebellion to bring about his purpose of redemption through them. And they can't question God for that because who are they to question God? If God wants mm -hmm. to mold and shape them into a, a vessel that's used for his purpose of redemption, who who are they to talk back to their maker? They, they can't, they're in the wrong, they're, they're unbelievers. And if God wants to reshape and remold a already spoiled lump of clay into a, a pot that he uses for his own purpose, then who are they to question him? That, that's that's the point he gets into. And I'm getting ahead of myself, obviously, but I'm, I'm mm -hmm. trying to connect the, the dots here. So yeah. not every descendant of Israel is blessed to be in the lineage of the Messiah or to be an inspired messenger 
of God's word. And so that, that's an important po- po- point to make, is that not everybody's Joseph or Mary just because you're a descendant of, of, of Israel. So you're not always, just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you're chosen to be an apostle. It doesn't mean you're going to be uh, in, the, in the line of the Messiah. It doesn't mean you have that special purpose involved in there. And it, and it certainly doesn't mean that you're going to automatically be saved either. Um, and that's what he gets, in, again, I'm getting ahead of myself. But, but that, mm-hmm. it, it's really important to understand the two things that the Israelites of that day just assumed was, one, I'm special because I'm an Israelite. And so I'm, I'm one of the elect. I'm, I'm a chosen one. And so automatically, I, can, I, I am the one who speaks for God. That's what the Pharisees all thought. They, everybody come to me, and I'll tell you what God wants from you. Because mm. we're, we're the Jews. We're the chosen ones. So we'll tell you what God wants from you. We speak for God. And secondly, we're, we got salvation in the, in the back here. Because we are law-abiding citizens of Israel. And that is what is needed for salvation. So they just assumed these two things. And Paul's going, nope, neither one of those is true. Just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't necessarily mean you've been chosen for the noble purpose of bringing about the oracles of God. You might not have been chosen for an apostleship. And just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you'll necessarily be saved because that comes through faith, not through Mm. lineage or good works. And so that's what he's undermining, not only here, but all throughout the book of Romans. And so not every descendant of Israel is blessed to be in the lineage uh, of the Messiah. Not every descendant of Israel is guaranteed salvation on the basis of being of Israel. And this is what he's going on to prove in the next verse here. Nor are all the children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed will shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Now there's a lot more I, I want to say on that point, but I'm trying to kind of move through yeah, that it, mm-hmm, a little faster. Mm-hmm. But go ahead, yeah. go ahead. Do you want to jump in? No, I was just going to say... Um, I think we're doing good here, um, and I think like in terms of time, probably about like thirty more minutes is like what I shoot for. Um, but once someone might wonder here, like, okay, well, if God is um, electing Israel and He's calling these people, um, well, this doesn't just sound like the, it's like the reformed picture here, um, where we have like well, unconditional election. God elects who He elects. Um, you know, He hardens who He's hardened, which is something later in the passage. Um, but what what are your thoughts? Like, election doesn't always support the reforms. Um, the reformed meaning of like what election means, at least right? Am I right? Am I tracking with right. you? Yeah, exactly. Uh, election means choice. It doesn't have to have a lot of mystical baggage attached to it. It just means choice. And God makes a lot of choices throughout redemptive history. He's chosen the nation of Israel. He's chosen messengers from that nation. Now, those are all elections of God, but they have nothing to do with individuals being chosen for effectual salvation to the neglect of other individuals. And that's mm-hmm. where I think the Calvinists make the mistake is oftentimes they'll take text about God's choice of Jonah or Paul as messengers from Israel and they'll use those as kind of proof text. Now, not all, all Calvinists make this mistake, but some of them do. And they'll use that, well, look at how Paul was called out to be an apostle. Therefore, I was called out the way Paul was. Well, no, mm-hmm. that's a non sequitur. Just because uh, Jonah, for example, was called out to be a messenger to Nineveh doesn't mean that God uses some irresistible means to make certain Ninevites believe Jonah's message when he gets there. Paul had to use a big fish. I mean, excuse me, God had to use a big fish to convince the the free will of Jonah who's running to Tarsus instead of going to Nineveh. Um, And so God, yes, has at his disposal ways to convince his messengers to do what he wants them to do so that his promise is fulfilled. But that doesn't in any way prove that God irresistibly causes certain people to believe the the messengers when they get there. And so Paul is a, he's a God-fearing man but he doesn't understand who the Messiah is. He has misunderstood who Jesus was. He thought that was a cult, and God's correcting him on the road to Damascus. He blinds him with a bright light, which is an external means to convince the free will of Paul. 
I am your Lord. I, I Jesus is the Messiah. You're 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 condemning the wrong people here, mm-hmm. Paul. I know you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to follow me, but you're you're you've misunderstood. Jesus is truly of God. And once he knows that, once that's revealed to him, he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, meaning he becomes the apostle that takes the message to the nations of the world, which is a part of the fulfillment of God's original promise. Through your seed, I will bless all the families of the earth. And so Paul is one of the means by which God is doing that very thing, fulfilling his promise. Mm. So hopefully that, that helps to answer that yeah. question. Yeah, I think that's good. And let's keep on going. And we get to get into like 9 through 13 here um, where we get into yeah. some, some okay. stuff. So you got Abraham's two sons by two different mothers. And that's used allegorically by Paul to represent the two covenants of the law, faith, as Paul's uh, own self-commentary explains there in Galatians chapter 4. Um, and I'm going to kind of skip through that because it gets into a, a long discussion of the allegorical speaking of the two women and the two covenants, uh, Mount mm-hmm. Sinai and Hagar. Is, is the, in other words, it's kind of like, just in brief, um, Abraham didn't believe. And so Abraham and Sarah decided, go sleep with Hagar and you can have Ishmael and that will be the seed. And instead of and so that, that represented allegorically the works. And then uh, Isaac represents by faith because if they had just waited, God would have provided and so it's either by works or by faith. And the whole dichotomy that Paul is setting up is, is salvation by works, Ishmael, Hagar, or by faith, waiting on the promise. And so that's why he's, he's setting up this dichotomy and these two covenants as, as a figurative language, as he says in, in Galatians 4. This is figurative, not literal. So it's not literally, I hate Ishmael, and he has no hope of salvation, and all the Ishmaelites are damned to hell before they're ever born. Obviously not. Some people who are descendants of Ishmael surely were saved by grace through faith as well. And so it's not, it's not a dichotomy that's literal. It's a figurative representation that Paul is laying out, as he lays out, I think, more clearly there in Galatians chapter 4, if you want to go study that for yourself. And so Abraham worked to bring about a nation through Hagar. So she and Ishmael is used by Paul allegorically to represent the covenants of works, as I just uh, laid out there. And so Abraham should have waited on the promise. Uh, and, and, and that's what Isaac obviously represents. So th- this is the apostle's way of using a history lesson to remind his audience that being a seed of Abraham does not mean one is guaranteed the blessings listed in verse four and five, which were specific to the seed of Isaac nor does it guarantee eternal blessing of being a child of God, which comes by faith in God's promise, symbolized by Isaac, whose birth came by grace, to whosoever believes, not by works of the law, symbolized by Ishmael, whose birth came by works. So hopefully that, that kind of, mm-hmm. I know that's deep and you can, I could talk hours just on that subject, but I'm going yeah. to try, try to go faster. I promise that. I, yeah. I'm gonna try no, to you. Yeah, you're good. Um, Romans 9, this is like, verse 9 is a good place to look at because um, some people may say, well, like, it starts off for, for this is the word of the promise. Like, this is going to happen. Um, it's unconditional. It's the way it's going to be. Um, man doesn't isn't really involved in this. Maybe he's, how a Calvinist might kind of like frame this idea and as this, a support of like reformed theology. Um, so what are your thoughts on what's going on here um, as, we, yeah. as we get into this? And again, go, go back to the question. Has God's promise failed since he promised the word would come through Israel and Israel is standing against the word? Is God's promise to bring the word through Israel failed? Is his blessing not going to come to all the families of the earth? Is, 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 is the nation of Israel damned and they have no hope anymore? And Paul's coming out and saying, no, that's not the, that's not the case. The, mm-hmm. Israel, who is Jacob, obviously Jacob's name was changed to Israel for those that aren't aware of the history of that. So Jacob was chosen to be the means by which the Messiah and his message would come to the world, okay? Esau and the Edomites were not chosen for that noble purpose. Does that mean Esau was damned to hell before he was ever born? 
fated for hell and all the Edomites were fated to hell before they were. No, just like the Ishmaelites are not necessarily fated. They can be saved by grace through faith too. But what, what is the point Paul's making? It's through this line of children, not that line, that I will fulfill my promise. And Paul is pointing this out to demonstrate that just because you have a the bloodline of Abraham in you doesn't necessarily you've been, mean you've been chosen for this honorable use. And he's giving that example by looking at Ishmael and Isaac first, and then now looking at Jacob and Esau. And so when you that's you got to understand that before you come to the verse. So for this, the word of the promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. This is the way in which the word of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3 is to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Isaac will be the lineage through whom the word would come. The Messiah and his message comes through Isaac's seed, not Ishmael's. Sarah is the free woman and represents the covenant of faith as opposed to the covenant of law represented by the slave woman. Not only this, but when Rebekah also conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, the apostle is taking one step further by not only seeking to prove his claims about the descendants of Abraham are true, but to, but to even more specifically show that not even one of the direct descendants of Isaac are, one, guaranteed salvation on the basis that they are a descendant, or two, chosen for the noble purpose of bringing the word to the rest of the world. And I already pointed that out earlier, um, but just kind of walking through that. So the next part of the text says this, for the children not yet being born, nor having done anything good or evil. In other words, they haven't. it's not about based upon if they've done good things or bad things, morality. In other words, it's not based upon how moral one of them is compared to the other, okay? But in order that God's purpose, of, the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said, the older shall serve the younger. So what that means is God's choice of Jacob, the lesser of the two brothers in age and physical prowess, was for the noble purpose of bringing the word, the Messiah and his message to the rest of the world. So even though Jacob wasn't the obvious choice to be the seed through which the promise would be fulfilled, Jacob was the chosen one. And it wasn't based upon his morality, his worth, his goodness. He was chosen to be the seed through which the Messiah would come. So it's not about Jacob being chosen for effectual salvation to the neglect of Esau. It's not the context that it's being talked about. So God's choice to fulfill his promise is not based upon the impressiveness of the nation, like Deuteronomy 7, 7 says. It's not because you're an impressive nation that I chose you, because you're big or you're better. In fact, you're actually weak and small. It's not based upon the morality of the representative head of that nation either. Just like we said, Jacob was not a, he was kind of a mama's boy and was known as a deceiver. I mean, he, he, he's the one who tricked him with the mm-hmm. bowl of porridge and all that kind of stuff to get, to get the blessing. Um, so point three, the fulfillment of God's word has never relied upon the faithfulness or the morality of the individuals chosen to carry it out, just like Romans 3 talks about. In other words, just because Paul is not a faithful vessel and Jonah is not a faithful vessel, just because my son might not be a faithful deliverer of the cookies doesn't mean that I'm going to fail to make sure my kids get the cookies because I promised they would. I'm going Mm. to fulfill my promise. God is going to fill his promise to take the message to Nineveh. Even when Jonah is unfaithful, he has at his disposal means to make sure he does what he promises he will do. So if the messengers are unfaithful, God is still faithful. And sometimes he works through ways you can't see because he's sovereign and you've got to trust him. So it may not look like God's fulfilling his promise and his purpose here, but he is. Okay, that's Mm -hmm. the point. 
neither brother would be justified apart from grace through faith in God. So neither Jacob or Esau would be justified apart from grace through faith in God, even though they are direct descendants of both Abraham and even Isaac himself. Salvation is by the covenant of grace through faith in the call of God, not the covenant of law through works. That's Paul's point. So in other words, yes, it is in accordance with the call of God. You can't assume that that call is effectual for only certain people, however. It's the call of God to faith in him. And mm. whoever responds in faith to that call will be justified by grace through faith. Um, and it's not meritorious. In other words, you're not meriting salvation by confessing your need for salvation. Um, you, you're not meriting your own righteousness by confessing you have no righteousness of your own, in other words. Mm -hmm. So other descendants of Abraham, uh, Esau and the Edomites, were not chosen for this noble purpose. As it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated. Now, over 1,500 years separate this quote in Malachi from the previous verse quoted from Genesis, indicating more of a before and after picture of what happened to Esau and his lineage. So is this um, quote more about like God hating the lineage of Esau, or is it like Esau specifically? Um, like what's going on here? Yeah, and so w when you talk about love and hatred, especially out of the quote of Malachi, it is talking about blessings and curses, okay? Mm -hmm. So I've blessed this people, and I've cursed this people. And then he goes on to explain why he's cursed this people, and it's not arbitrary, mm -hmm. it's not without reason. In other words, it's very clear why he curses the Edomites. It's because they attack the Israelites. Which, again, it goes back, this is what's so cool about this, Zach, it goes back to the original promise in, in Genesis 12, 3, where he mm. says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. So if mm. you stand against the people who were chosen to bring the promise of God, then you will be under his hatred, his curse. Well, what are the Pharisees doing in Paul's day? They are descendants of Isaac who are standing against the people chosen to bring the word of God. And so mm. what is the warning Paul is bringing? Even a descendant of Isaac himself, if he stands against the chosen people and fights them, then they will be under the curse and the hatred of God, just like the Edomites were before you. So th that's his point here. This is more of a before and after picture. This is what happens when you stand against the chosen people of God, even if you are a direct descendant of those same people, just like the Edomites would have been. In fact, the oldest child of Isaac. So the expressed hatred toward Esau's household reflected in the quote from Malachi reveals even direct descendants of Isaac himself, Edom, are not chosen for the noble purpose that God elected Israel. Thus one should not assume that the opposition of direct descendants to God's word is an indication of its failure. Mm -hmm. Even direct descendants of Isaac himself, the Edomites, are not guaranteed salvation, especially if they remain in opposition to those who are chosen to bring the word of God as conditioned upon their original promise. I will curse those who curse you in Genesis 12, 3. So there's many examples in scripture are given to show the concept of hate referring simply uh, to, to simply rejecting without disdain one over another for a noble purpose. And we can see this in especially, you know, John, uh, Luke uh, 14, 26. It's a well-known verse that if you don't hate your father and mother, um, and, and your brothers and sister and your wife and children, you don't hate yourself, you, you're not worthy to be my disciple. It's not literal disdain and rejection. It's talking about a choice. If you don't choose me above even your loved ones, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. In other words, God's first. In the same way, I have chosen Jacob first over Esau. So it's an idiomatic use of the terms love and hate doesn't literally mean God just hated a baby before he was ever born. 
I think that's an impractical reading of the text because then you have God ultimately hating most unborn babies. And that, that's obviously not tenable or uh, consistent with the whole of what we read uh, in the Word of God about his love and his character uh, towards uh, the unborn. Mm-hmm. So Esau was also blessed and protected by God as seen in Deuteronomy and Genesis and other passages that are quoted there. And so, uh, and so the hated was either, one, conditioned upon the Edomites' attack upon Israel, or in reference to God's selection of Jacob and his lineage for the noble purpose over Esau and his lineage. So it has nothing to do, in other words, with God uh, unilaterally just choosing somebody for damnation before they're ever born and another person for salvation before they're ever born. That's not the context of what Paul's discussing. Mm. And so why, why God is just in showing mercy to unfaithful Israelites to accomplish his promise in bringing the word. And so I've given that title just to help to understand this is what I, this is where the flow of the argument from Paul's mind, okay? So he's answering the question, why, why is God just in showing mercy to unfaithful Israelites in order to accomplish his promise in bringing the word even through unfaithful Israelites? God choosing to bless one descendant over another descendant does not make him unrighteous. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. The descendant of Abraham in Paul's day had two false perceptions. One, every descendant deserves the benefit of bringing God's word. However, the truth is that God has only selected a remnant through whom to bring his word. And who are those remnant? The believing ones, those who Mm. refuse to bow and eat a bail. That's the people he chooses. So he doesn't choose arbitrarily or for no apparent reason. He chooses them because they are faithful. They, they believe. They're willing to stand against the, the tide of the Israelites of that day who are worshiping a false god. And so I'm going to choose this ragtag group of 7,000 who refuse to bow a knee to Baal, and I'm going to accomplish my purpose through this group mm. in the same way in Paul's day. I can accomplish my, my purpose through this ragtag group of 12 uh, who are no-name fishermen, and I can always accomplish my purpose even uh, through a, a small remnant. So... Um, um, every descendant deserves eternal, excuse me, every descendant deserves eternal life. This is a false perception, by the way, of, of the Israelites of that day. So they assume every descendant deser- deserves eternal life on the basis of them being of Israel. So they're a law-abiding citizen of Israel, so I deserve salvation. It's basically the mindset of the people of that day. However, no one is saved based upon their nationality or their good works, but only upon grace through faith. That's, that's the point Paul is getting to. So those nations and the individuals therein who oppose God's word would remain under the curse or the hatred as illustrated by Edom and the Edomites who are direct descendants of Isaac himself. In other words, they have Abraham's blood in them. And yet look at the curse they were under. Why? Because they stood against the people chosen for the honorable use. Mm. Um, and and that's, that's the point. There is no unrighteousness with God for choosing some descendants for a noble cause and not others. Nor is there, it is unjust to condemn a descendant of Abraham who stands in opposition to the word of God. God can have mercy on unfaithful descendants when it serves his purpose, which is exactly what he goes on to write when he says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. Mercy. So it sounds, okay, um, yeah, sorry, yeah. if you don't, yeah, yeah, so it sounds like like someone could read this here and say, well, doesn't this sound kind of like Calvinism where you have like, well, God can just justly choose his elect and um, that's it and it's totally fair, like it's just God who is sovereign and in control and 
it seems like like we just don't need this like human element where it's like the hu- it's the human's job to choose God. Um, someone might kind of like read that through this text, and like I'm just curious what your thoughts are on on this Leighton as we keep going through this text. Sure. Um, well, if you're coming in with the Calvinistic presumptions, then yes. I mean, I used to believe this was Calvinistic too when I came in with those presumptions. In other words, somebody taught me the tulip and then would bring me to this text and walk me through it. And then I would go, oh, yeah, I guess that, that I mean, that sounds like it's supporting exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. But you got to recognize your presumptions and you got to be willing to challenge those presumptions. So if yeah. you, you challenge the presumption of total inability, which is the T of TULIP, and you challenge the presumption of unconditional election, which is the U, and you challenge the, 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 uh, um, the assumption of irresistible grace, you challenge those presumptions. And you don't assume them and you come to the text without those presumptions and ask yourself the question, what is Paul's mindset here? Is he trying to teach the, the, those three points of TULIP, or is he really trying to explain what I've already laid out here with regard to God's promise being fulfilled through Israel, even when they're unfaithful? Um, mm. And, and I, I think it's obviously the latter, not the former. And so when he says, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy, the way the Calvinist reads that in his mind with those presumption is, oh, that means I can unconditionally elect to save irresistibly whoever I want to save. And mm. you can't question if I, try, if I choose Bob and not Bill, before they're ever born, and I choose to, to to destine him for salvation and him for damnation, then I can have mercy on whomever I want to have mercy. Who are you to question me? And so they think that verse is supporting Calvinism, but the original context of that verse doesn't support it. What, what's the original context? The original context is Israel has just built a, a golden calf, and they are about to be killed by God, judged by God for their unfaithfulness. And Moses, the Christ-like figure in the story, in that narrative, steps forward and says, don't take them. Remember mm. your promise to, to Abraham. Fulfill your promise to Abraham and, and, and continue to show them mercy. And he responds, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. In other words, I can show Israel mercy when it serves my purpose. And that's exactly what he chooses to do in that event. He chooses to show people who deserve to be judged and destroyed. He, he chooses to show them mercy, which is exactly... The point I go on to make here: mercy is patently, ref, patiently, excuse me, patiently refraining from punishing someone who deserves to be punished. It does not mean effectual salvation. Mercy doesn't mean to effectually save somebody to the neglect of somebody else. Okay, mercy means to refrain from punishing somebody who deserves to be punished. Israel, when they built the golden calf, deserved to be punished. God mm-hmm. refrained from punishing them. In other words, He let them continue to exist so as to bring about His promise to Abraham through their seed. Okay. So Paul's reference to Moses' encounter with God in his, uh, Exodus 32 and 33 gives us a perfect historical example of when God was merciful to Israel when they deserved to be destroyed for their unfaithfulness, the worshiping of the golden calf. This example also parallels Moses' self-sacrificial Christ-like love for Israel as reflected by Paul in the opening verses of the chapter. Certainly God may choose to save whoever he is pleased to save. Scripture teaches he chooses to save those who humble themselves and repent in faith, as seen in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6. But this passage is in reference to God patiently showing mercy, refraining to punish, unfaithful Israel, so as to fulfill his original promise through them, even though they deserve condemnation, which is exactly the point he brings in verse 6. Is God's promise failed? No. God can show mercy to Israel when he wants to show them mercy, even when they're unfaithful. He can also harden them when he, when he wants to, which is what he's about to get into. God's purpose in electing Israel is not dependent upon the willing or the running, the good works of the Israelites. 
It's not dependent upon their nationality or their running after their good, their good deeds. Um, they're striving after the law. It's not dependent upon that. It's dependent upon the grace of God through the call of the gospel and those who believe and trust in him. God can establish his covenant with whomever he wants, even barbarian Gentiles, by grace through faith. And who are you to question mm. if he does this? So then it's not of him who wills or him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now, a lot of Calvinists will bring this into the context. This It's not of him who wills. And they will say, they'll bring that into the context of the philosophical question of libertarian free will versus compatibilistic free will and all of that kind of baggage that we, philosophical baggage that we get into about what free will is. It's not what it's talking about, okay? This is the same thing he's talking about later in the chapter in verses 30 and following when it says the Israelites strived after the law, strived after righteousness through the law, and they have not attained it. What are they doing? They're willing and they're running. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of willpower to fulfill the 635 commands of the Mosaic law. It takes a lot of willpower. And what he's saying is not of him who runs after the law, who strives after the law. Um, it is it is, it is, is based upon a God who shows mercy. And who does he show mercy to? Regardless of their nationality, regardless of their good deeds, regardless of their morality, he, he chooses to establish covenant by grace through faith. That's the point he's he's getting to here. And so um, continuing, continuing on, he goes on to say, um, I write this. I said, it refers to the fulfillment of God's promise to bring his word despite Israel's unfaithfulness. The promise depends on our merciful God, not on the faithfulness, the willing and the running of Abraham or his descendants, which is exactly what Romans 3 got, got into as well, as we've already mentioned. Abraham willed and ran in the flesh to produce a son through Hagar who Paul used symbolically to represent the covenant of law and works, as Galatians mm -hmm. 4 lays out. God, by his mercy, provided Isaac through the free woman, Sarah, who God symbolic, who, who, excuse me, who Paul symbolically uses to represent the covenant of grace by faith in the call of God. So why, why, why is God just to harden unfaithful Israelites to accomplish his promise in bringing the word? And that's what 17 and 18 gets into. Do you want me yeah. to stop there or pause there before we, um, we move on? I'll just, I'll just add a little bit um, here because we're getting close to the end of the time. So we're talking about 17, 18, and 19 through 21, and then just get, do a little bit at the end, just kind of summarizing everything that happens after um, sure. if that works for you. Um, but 17 through 18 is a very interesting part because like, like if you read it like from a Calvinist perspective, you can talk about like God has mercy on whom he has wills, and he'll harden who he hardens. Like what's going on there with regards to like, well, couldn't you just harden like the people that are like, so to speak, like retrograde, reprobated. Um, so I'll leave it to you. Like what's going on here yeah. in 17 so, and 18. Again, if you come in with the tulip presumptions in your mind and then you walk, you walk, somebody walks you through the text, what it sounds like is, is I can have mercy on whom I have mercy means I can unilaterally choose to save irresistibly save some people. And I can choose to harden everyone else and damn them mm -hmm. to hell. And who are you to question if I do that? Okay. Yeah. And that, and that's what the Calvinist is using that verse to say. But that's not what the verse is about. The verse is still about Israel. I can choose to show mercy to Israel when it serves my purpose, like he did in the Golden Calf incident. And I can choose to harden Israel when it serves my purpose, like he's doing right now in Paul's day. So he's hardening Israel. Um, and he's doing it for the purpose of bringing about his promise. So God can choose to mercy Israel to bring about his promise, and he can choose to harden Israel to bring about his promise. But it, it's the answer to the first question in verse 6. It's always about bringing about God's promise. That's one of the reasons I, I called the book The Potter's Promise. God always brings about his promise, and he can do it through mercying Israel when it serves his purpose, 
and it can, he can do it through hardening Israel when it serves his purpose. But he'll mm -hmm. always fulfill his promise, um, even through his hardened nation. So how can God be just in doing this? In other words, how, how is it possible that God is just to harden his chosen elect people? That's the question he's answering here. God can harden the unfaithful when it serves his purpose. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, on this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name might be declared in all the earth. In the same way that God hardened the already rebellious will of Pharaoh in order to accomplish the first Passover, so too God hardened the already rebellious wills of the Israelites to accomplish the real Passover. Please follow that. Again, a lot of commentators, uh, I know N.T. Wright gets into this pretty detailed and several other commentators talk about the parallel between Pharaoh being hardened and Israel being hardened. In mm. the same way Pharaoh was hardened to bring about the first Passover, Israel is being hardened to bring about the second Passover. And God is just in both instances. And mm. he's not just because he's unilaterally picked Pharaoh before he was ever born for damnation. Oh, and he's unilaterally picked the hardened Israelites for damnation. That, that flies in the face of all the other verses we've already mentioned and into chapter 11 when he says these same hardened Israelites might turn and be saved. So that's not obviously the reading here. He's talking about how God is just to bring about his promise and his purpose even through hardening the chosen nation uh, in, in people from that chosen nation. God's power and his goodness was displayed in mercying unfaithful Israelites in the day of Moses and in hardening the unfaithful Israelites in the day of the Messiah. God can patiently refrain from punishing Israel when they deserve, even when they deserve it, to accomplish his purpose. Mm. And he can cut them off in their unbelief to accomplish his purpose, which is what I think the point is when he says, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. I can, I can mercy Israel and the individual Israelites when it serves my purpose to show them mercy and refrain from destroying when they deserve to be destroyed. And I can harden them when it serves my purpose to bring about my promise and my, my purpose of electing them uh, in the mm. first place. Yeah. So sometimes God will fulfill his promises by showing Israelites mercy, but his word will never fail. Sometimes God will fulfill his promise by hardening Israelites, but his word will never fail. Those judicially hardened or cut off are not born in this condition. This is key because the Calvinistic reading ultimately has people born in that condition, uh, at least implicitly, if not explicitly, from the Calvinist claims, that they're already cut off arbitrarily or unilaterally, at least, before they're ever born. And that's not Paul's point. The judicially hardened, the cut off ones, are not born in this condition, but they have grown hardened over years of rebellion, as reflected in Acts 28 that we've gone over on our epi on many episodes on our, our podcast especially. They are mm. cut off for unbelief, according to chapter 11, verse 20. And the hope of the apostle is that they may be grafted back in and saved if they will only leave their unbelief. He wants them to leave their unbelief. He expects that they might leave their unbelief when provoked to envy by his ministry to the Gentiles, as he says in chapter 11 uh, and, and following, uh, mm. verse 14 and following. Yeah. So, um, so the last section here uh, I wanted to talk with you here about is like 19 through 21, where it talks about like the potter having power over the clay. Um, he can kind of do what he wants. So what are your what's your thoughts here? And believe this is like kind of like the last section we'll go over um, in this interview. And, and I'm sure people can like, check out your outline or all your other videos on like Romanzan if they want to go further into the text. But, like what's going on here? And like, well, if the potter is making the clay, doesn't that just kind of mean that God um, is like, he chooses like when we're saved and things like that uh, or something along these yeah. lines. So what's going on in, in this section? 
Yeah, I, I think some people try to read the potter clay analogy and assume that it's it's supporting a deterministic uh, model of the way things work. And I, and I think through the scriptures, we can see that that's not always the case, which I, I think you'll see in the outline. So here, here's the question. If the Israelites' unrighteousness accomplishes God's promise to bring his word, why are they to blame? So why blame, in other words, why blame somebody if their rebellious actions were a part of God's plan in the first place? Just mm. like Romans 3 talks about. If, 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 if them crying out, crucify him, give us Barabbas, was a part of God's determinative will and counsel, then why are they still to be blamed for that? I mean, that, that, that is a big question. And, it, and that's the objector. That's the interlocutor that we believe Paul is answering. So he's not answering the objection of double predestination within the Calvinistic worldview. He's answering the question of how is God just to harden us in our rebellion and to use us in our rebellion to bring about his plan and purpose. How are we still to be blamed for that? Um, and that's that's what he's raising here, the, the issue. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? So you, an Israelite, hardened to accomplish God's promise, will say to me, an Israelite shown mercy to accomplish God's promise, why are we to blame if God's will is being fulfilled through us? Okay. So as the apostle already indicated in chapter 3, verse 5, this is a man-made argument that reveals a heart that has become calloused in its rebellion. Otherwise, they might see, hear, understand, and repent. In other words, the reason they're in that condition is because of their own hardened rebellion against the things of God. They're not in that condition because God unilaterally picked them and caused them to be in that condition through some effectual means. Okay, They're in that condition freely. They could have and should have done otherwise. But God knows their hearts. God used them in their rebellion to bring his purposes through their rebellion, and he's just to do so. Do those, um, do those cut off and hardened by God have the right to question God's judgments? Well, here's what Paul's answer is. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the right over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? You see, the lump of the hardened clay represents Israel as a whole, who has grown calloused in rebellion, as we see in Acts 28, 27, and who are now being remolded or reshaped into two different kinds of vessels. There are those unfaithful Israelites remolded by means of, of signs from the incarnate Messiah himself to bring the word. And there are those who are also equally unfaithful Israelites who are also remolded and shown to be used as means of judicial hardening to accomplish the ignoble purpose of bringing redemption to, on the cross and the engrafting of the Gentiles so mm. that they too may be saved, in fact. So mm. um, going into verse 22 and 24, how God's word and thus his glory is revealed through mercying and hardening Israel. And this gets to the point that that kind of becomes the crux of the issue. God is just to demonstrate his wrath and his power through rebellious people, even if they are of his elect nation. So what if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known? How, how might he do that? Well, by hardening Pharaoh, God demonstrated his power over all the Egyptian gods. Just as God manifests himself through Pharaoh's judicial hardening, he likewise does through, through Israel's judicial hardening. In other words, God uses a hardened, rebellious sinner who is hardened and rebellious by his own free choice, by the way, not by a sovereign decree, and he uses him in his rebellion, reshapes and remolds him, and uses him in that rebellion to bring about a good through him, the Passover. It's exactly what he's doing to Israel in the time of, of Paul and in the first century. And so 
he's he's ultimately saying it's perfectly within God's right to do this. He's done it before. He did it with Pharaoh. He can surely do it with you. That's his mm. point. So God may be patient, merciful on rebellious people when it serves a greater redemptive purpose, which is what he goes on to write. Endured with much long suffering, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, again, the way the Calvinist sees this is that these vessels of wrath are the reprobates. But my, my question for Calvinist, if you think the vessels of wrath are reprobates, people unilaterally picked for destruction for hell before they were ever born, then why is he enduring them with much patience and long suffering? What is there to be patient for? There, there, there's no reason for him to be patient and long-suffering for people he is destined for wrath from the very beginning. What, what's he talking about? On our perspective, what he's saying is Jesus, God has been patient and long-suffering, holding out his hands patiently to Israel. So the vessels of wrath he's talking about here aren't those unilaterally picked for destruction before they were born. He's talking about the unbelieving Israelites who have grown calloused and hardened in their rebellion. So God patiently put up with rebellious Israelites, even in their stubborn rebellion, so as to accomplish a greater redemptive good, i.e. the crucifixion and the engrafting of the Gentiles. And due to their, uh, due to their uh, continual unbelief and rebellion, Israel prepared themselves for wrath and destruction. In other words, it's their own rebellious heart that is the reason for their wrath and destruction. The fact that God used them in their rebellion and in and, and their unbelief doesn't mean that God determined them to be rebellious and unbelievers from birth by some kind of a decree. No, that's their choice, and God can use them in that rebellion to bring about his redemptive good for the world. So being cut off or given over or prepared for destruction is what they have earned by their own free rebellion, just like the Edomites and the Egyptians before them. So that comes to the, the next point. And this might be known by the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy whom he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, which is a calling that not only goes to the Jews, which is what he's been talking about so far, but it also includes the Gentiles who he has called. And so now he's bringing in the Gentiles into the discussion to, to illustrate the point that the calling doesn't go just to the Israelites, the remnant of Israel. It also is a message that the remnant of Israel take to the nations so that all may be blessed. So I'll stop there. I guess we, we, we've mm -hmm. hit our hour over our hour. Yeah, mark, so I'll stop we are a little bit over. Um, yeah. I appreciate you kind of going through this. Um, do you have like, I know there's a little bit more here in Romans 9. Do you want to kind of like briefly like give like in a couple minutes here, just get, just give a summary of the rest of what goes on in Romans 9 and, and beyond? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it can't be overlooked, especially the kind of the final verses here. Um, and again, I know I know it's skipping a lot, and I, I encourage you to go to the website, Sociology 101, and if you typed in Romans 9 in the search feature, you'd, this would be one of the first ones that come up, the, the outline. And so the, this this is the commentary of Paul himself. And so what, what better way to know what Paul is talking about than to look at his own commentary? Because he even says, what shall we say then? In other words, what conclusion shall we, we come to based upon what I just got through teaching? And, and here's the conclusion. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. In other words, they have not worked and they've not strived after it. They're not descendants of Abraham and they're not working and striving after the law. They did not pursue righteousness, but they have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing, striving and running after the law of righteousness have not attained it to the law of righteousness. And so Gentiles did not run after the law and desire to keep the commandments in order to earn God's favor the covenant of laws represented by Hagar and Ishmael to begin the chapter. But they trusted in his promise, the covenant promised represented by Sarah and Isaac. The Israelites, in contrast, did run after 
and desire to keep the commandments in order to attain righteousness, much like Abraham trying to produce a son in the flesh through the slave woman. But they have not attained it. So from the beginning of this chapter, it has been about faith versus works, not synergism versus monergism or Arminianism versus Calvinism, or if, if God is deterministically controlling everything or not. It's not about those things. It's about faith versus works. It's about God's sovereign right to establish his covenant people either by faith or by works. If he wants to do it by grace through faith, it's his sovereign right. Who are you to question him if he doesn't do that by law through works? Um, th that's the point. And so our God, so, um, our, God's, our sovereign God, chooses to save those who pursue righteousness by faith rather than works regardless of the nationality or their, mal uh, or their morality. Why? Mm. Look at the text. Here's why he chooses one over another. Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. In other words, we know why God chooses to show mercy to one person and not another. He chooses mm -hmm. based upon whether they seek righteousness through Christ or they seek righteousness through their own righteousness through the works of the law. Yeah. That's, that's the key to the entire text right there. Mm. It's so great, Leighton. I'm so glad you came on to talk about um, Romans 9 and all the important things that go along with it. Um, so to wrap things up here, I'll take your um, really great outline off the screen. Um, do you have any like last thoughts, things you need to say before we wrap things up here? Yeah, I, I would just say, I've said this on my broadcast, and I'll just say it here. You know, sometimes it's like those bleaks. They're called bleaks, where they, they have two pictures in one, and it's like an old woman or a young woman, or it's like a duck and a rabbit all in one picture. You've all seen those things. Mm -hmm. um, and if you've been taught that that one picture is the only picture and and you've been brought up to believe okay paul is teaching about a duck here and it's just obviously a duck can't you see the duck i mean it's just obviously he's describing a duck it's hard to be objective and to step back away and back away from your presuppositions and to see that maybe he's describing a rabbit you thought it was a duck and, and genuinely believe it's you're well intending you really think he's describing a duck so you're trying to defend paul and the gospel and what you believe is true. I understand that. I, I believe that myself. I believe Paul was describing a duck, so to speak, uh, the Calvinistic duck, so to speak, uh, in Romans 9. It wasn't mm. until I was objective enough to step away from my presuppositions and say, what if these presuppositions aren't the correct ones? What if historically he's actually addressing the hardening of Israel and not this mm. concept and idea of tulip? Um, then, then maybe he, he, he means something different. And then when I was able to be objective, I was able to at least see the rabbit in the, in the text. And once I was able to see both the duck and the rabbit, then I was able to make a good, intelligent decision as to which one Paul was actually describing. What, what I have found in my experience is not true across the board, but in my experience, many times people can only see one of the two. And they're so dogmatically set on one, they're not even willing to entertain that the other might be in view. And all I'm asking for your listeners to do is just be object, objective enough to just to step back and go, what if I'm wrong here? What if I've come into this text with some false presuppositions? And mm. just approach it anew and fresh and say, God, I want you to teach me. Holy Spirit, please guide me as I read these texts. Please help me to understand these things. Please help me to understand where you're coming from um, and when, you're, when you're teaching through your apostle, Paul, in this text, and help me to understand it rightly and really study the truth objectively. And, and I think if you do that, honestly, I think that God will lead you into the right direction into understanding his word rightly.
Mm. I think that's so great in looking at like Romans nine and in just everything that we do, just kind of trying to look at things un- as unbiased as we can and just like looking for truth. Um, so thank you so much, Leighton, for coming on today. It's been so much fun um, listening to you and talking about this very important text. So I encourage everyone if you don't follow Soteriology one hundred and one, great um, YouTube channel, podcast, um, website, all so- great content here on this whole like cult, Calvinism, Arminianism, um, provisionism, like this whole conversation. So I encourage everyone to check that out. If you're new to our channel, I always encourage you to subscribe on your way out leave a like um leave a review if you're listening via podcast and if you enjoy the show you can support us on patreon.com so should hear apologize but layton thank you so much for your time it's been so much fun uh appreciate it one last time thanks zach yep and thank you everyone who tuned in today have a good one and god bless <laughs>